and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Heute haben wir einen Bonusfolge vorbereitet. We have done a bonus episode for you all today. I hope you are as pumped as I am to get into it. Let's jump right in. So we're talking about Bleak House. We're doing our narrow reading. This time we're going to dig into some quotes. I'm super excited. First, I wanted to talk about the narration. I mentioned a bit about the narration in the first episode, which aired on Sunday evening. The narration is consistently a third-person omniscient narrator. This is for all intents and purposes, the omniscient voice of Dickens. Uh, the voice is quite humorous at times. For example, when they identify themselves as a member of the quote-unquote fashionable intelligence, spying, so to speak, on Lady Dedlock and her husband, Sir Leicester Dedlock. There's also, however, a first-person narration of Esther, and in particular, these narration styles are serve as foils for each other in the sense that Esther is the voice of reason, the voice of morality, the voice that takes care of others almost above herself, which is really incredible and it comes it falls into a trope that I'm going to talk about a bit later in the episode of women during this time period especially a uh, very crucial woman to the whatever narration we're looking at there's a trope that I want to talk about with regard to that but the omniscient narrator is sort of this detached very egocentric force within the narrative which is always interesting to consider of what the omniscient narrator brings to the narration itself and to the story, what in this case perhaps Dickens brings to the story in the form of the omniscient narrator. Uh, good questions to be asking in any case, even if they are relatively unfounded in our case. And also this selfless first-person narration, <laughs> which almost goes against the grain, so to speak, right? Because we think of omniscient narrators, we think of third person, obviously, we think of the over aerial view, overarching type of view of the narrative. Uh, we think of omniscient narrators sometimes to be this detached voice of reason. And in this case, that's not necessarily true. We have to bring up questions right off the bat about the unreliability of some omniscient narrators, as in, for example, Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is not a new idea, but it's certainly a good one to consider, especially with this separate narrator that we get our hands into with Esther. The other broad-minded thing that I wanted to bring up is that the ruse in this case, and the ruse of Bleak House in general, is in the details as well. I talked in the first episode, part 1a, about this idea that Bleak House is a criticism ultimately of the Court of Chancery. That's, that's all some reviewers say it is. They just say it's about the Court of Chancery, end of story. To me, it's about a lot of other things, and especially societal criticisms that 
will become more apparent as we look at character later in this episode as well. But there's also this idea, not only on the broad scope, but in each detail of the novel. The Court of Chancery is this overarching, looming thing, but it's also a very specific thing. It is represented in so many different symbols and sayings and different ways in this novel. And it's important to look at how the parts contribute to the whole in the sense of looking at the Lord Chancellor as a symbol for the Court of Chancery and his actions and how his actions sort of influence the motivations of all of the characters because they are ultimately related to the lawsuit which governs in small and large ways their lives and motivations. Looking at how every character almost is tied up in some sort of law type business which revolves, mind you, around the Court of Chancery in this particular locale. And so we have all of these characters, this wash of characters that's a really magnificently large cast, especially compared to books like David Copperfield, who have, by comparison, um, and I would say by comparison uh, of Dickens' entire works, collective works, a relatively small cast of characters that are recurring and come up again and again. There's not many minor characters, for example. Here's the exact opposite. We've got this, again, this wash of character, um, different characters that really, all of them are, their motivations are tied to the court of chancery in some way. And so their thoughts and actions and, again, motivations are going to be somehow linked directly to what's going on with the court. And that becomes, I think, the most powerful social criticism of the Court of Chancery because we look at the absurdities of these individual characters and their decisions over and over again um, in this compound effect. And it builds up, even we're at, what, page 200-something, 150-something, even now it is building up and building up to a degree of ludicrousy that is, I think, fantastically done. Alright, moving forward, I'm going to talk a bit about plot for sure. I'm going to bring up a couple of passages of description that I found to be really stunning. I'll definitely be reading a lot throughout this episode. And then I'm going to make some cross comparisons along the way and do some character study as well at the end. And so getting into the plot here, one thing that really ground my gears a bit while I was going on the interwebs and searching a bit for uh, the first episode that I made the script, at least. All of the little summaries that I found of this novel skip over Esther's childhood. They give maybe a sentence to it, which maybe is liberal considering the scope of the novel plus the breadth of most reviews, which are a couple pages in length. Uh, so maybe it's it's just to do this, but why skip over Esther's childhood to such a degree? I really loved the immaculate detail that Dickens chooses to write <laughs> all of a sudden in the first couple of chapters. I think it's the fourth chapter that details Esther and her upbringing. And I love how there's this change of time frame that is so swift 
and we are getting Esther narrating from the present day. So she's narrating in retrospect um, and she is catching us up and she doesn't like this catching up, <laughs> I might add. She doesn't like talking about herself and in some ways she chooses to focus more on the circumstances of other people through her eyes, so she uses her limelight in a very interesting way. Whereas I think a lot of us, if we were to narrate something, we would talk about our feelings and ourselves a lot more than Esther does. Esther looks to the people around her to describe her circumstances, how fortunate she is, for example, um, the different reactions and feelings that she has throughout describing these circumstances are often fielded through the other characters in the story. For example, her aunt, the housekeeper at the beginning, uh, her twin tutors when she's teaching for six years, etc. There's a quote on page 134 in particular that I wanted to bring up that I think would mean more if we collectively as an audience of this book paid more attention to the childhood stories that Esther narrates. And this is right after Guppy proposes to her. What? And it was just such a, a fantastic, crazy, chaotic scene that uh, that was when Guppy <laughs> decides to propose. And I saw it coming. I'm sure some other readers did by the way he's dressed, the way he's acting, etc. And Esther just doesn't see it coming at all. She doesn't know Guppy that well, so perhaps that's reason enough as well. And uh, this is after that whole affair. She's calming down for the day, and she says this on page 134, quote, But when I went upstairs to my own room, I surprised myself by beginning to laugh about it, and then surprised myself still more by beginning to cry about it. In short, I was in a flutter for a little while and felt as if an old cord had been more coarsely touched than it ever had been since the days of the dear old doll long buried in the garden." Unquote. And that, man, if that doesn't tug at your heartstrings, I don't know what would. Esther, her only companion growing up, is this doll which she leaves when she leaves her home in the garden buried and it's her only friend and she is just so ostracized and so alone and I can't imagine the desolation of that kind of a childhood and having that desolation almost put in her face again with this event of I have to refuse Guppy or she's compelled to refuse him and I'm sure there's so many social factors that go into that immediate reaction and then her sticking to that act, uh, reaction and that action um, that we won't get into. But just having that feeling of someone has seen me and it wasn't my doll this time, it was an actual living human being. Someone has seen me and only me. And then having to reject that feeling, I can't imagine. And I think it gives a lot of depth to Esther that she calls upon her childhood and those feelings and that experience in this way right at the end of the chapter here. So much to talk about, you all. Okay, we'll be jumping a bit around during these episodes as I settle into how best to do them. I hope you will be okay with that and <laughs> go right along with me. 
Uh, we'll go to page 124 and 125 now. I want to talk about how Dickens characterizes Boythorn, this friend and the neighbor of Sir Leicester Dedlock slash enemy of him. <laughs> Um, and I, I was really just interested about this description, how this character is introduced to us as this lively, vital kind of figure. Let's read, quote, We all conceived a prepossession in his favor, for there was a sterling quality in this laugh and in his vigorous, healthy voice, and in the roundness and fullness with which he uttered every word he spoke. And in the very fury of his superlatives, which seemed to go off like blank cannons and hurt nothing. But we were hardly prepared to have it so confirmed by his appearance when Mr. Jarndyce presented him. He was not only a very handsome old gentleman, upright and stalwart as he had been described to us, with a massive grey head, a fine composure of face when silent, a figure that might have become corpulent but for his being so continually in earnest that he gave it no rest, and a chin that might have subsided into a double chin but for the vehement emphasis in which it was constantly required to assist. But he was such a true gentleman in his manner, so chivalrously polite. His face was lighted by a smile of so much sweetness and tenderness, and it seemed so plain that he had nothing to hide, but showed himself exactly as he was. Incapable, as Richard said, of anything on a limited scale, and firing away with those blank, great guns, because he carried no small arms whatever. That really I could not help looking at him with equal pleasure as he sat at dinner, whether he smilingly conversed with Ada and me, or was led by Mr. Jarndyce into some great volley of superlatives, or threw up his head like a bloodhound, and gave out that tremendous ha ha ha, unquote. Again, that was pages 124 and 125 in the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of the text. This is one sentence for the most part, uh, and it is a beautifully long sentence, as you just heard. Let me count the number of sentences here. One, two, and there's a bunch of semicolons. And so it's three sentences. That whole passage was three sentences. What I love about it is there's so much punctuation in it. Uh, besides, there's lots of dashes, semicolons, as I said, commas, and it's this unrelenting characterization of this figure that is unrelenting even in the way with which it's written. And what I love about Dickens's writing in general is that he doesn't shy away from allowing his writing style to adapt to the character that he is witnessing. Uh, in this case, Esther is the narrator, and she is unwittingly, seemingly at least, uh, giving this characterization in the way that she sees him, which is, it's a grand sentence. It is unrelenting and it doesn't stop moving in the same way that Boythorn does not start moving, in the same way that there are no small gestures that he can give. Similarly, there's no short sentence that can be used to describe him. I won't read it aloud, but there's also a speech at in, ver in the very last part of this uh, section that we are going over series one through four, or serials one through four, 
um, Mrs. Piper, who is a townswoman, gives this speech that is almost entirely in parentheses, and she adds every few words is another parentheses, another thing that jumps in, and you can just imagine this beautiful, um, vivacious kind of English woman uh, who is standing up there giving a testimony, and she every few seconds loses her train of thought to the extent of putting a parentheses in before she continues, you know. And my husband, who is actually a really great cabinet maker or whatever, was blah blah blah. And it's yeah, it's it's hilarious. That's one of the big points of humor in this serial, at least for me, um, or this uh, section of serials. And the way, again, the way that Dickens is writing through the perspective of the omniscient narrator, later the perspective of Esther, um, these narrators are not immune to the effects of these characters <laughs> in real life. And um, each narrator is bringing in the qualities of the characters into the writing itself. So it's just, it's just brilliant. I hope you all enjoy that aspect as much as I do. And quickly, before we move on to more descriptions, there is a great space for dialect that I'm just going to point out. You can go and read it yourselves. I'm not going to embarrass myself or you all <laughs> by trying to read it myself. Uh, chapter 8 in the section where they visit the brick maker for the first uh, yeah for the first time is probably the best section for that. It's a great passage of dialect and where Dickens is sounding out dialect and writing out the way the dialect sounds. Uh, it's really interesting the way that Dickens incorporates dialect and this is one of the most obvious and most sustained passages for dialect. Joe the little chimney sweep has a also a couple lines of dialectical speech here and there but uh, and dialectical not in like that academic sense but like the literal sense of he's speaking in dialect um but it's again not as sustained as this brickmaker passage so if you want to look at how dickens is writing out essentially what i would call like untranslated or unfootnoted dialect uh, that would be a great place to go uh from there let's go to page one 38 through 139. This is actually going to be a gem because I marked it when I was reading and I have not looked at it since. <laughs> so I put it in my notes to look at and I said favorite passage and let's look at it again here. Pages 138 and 139. Okay, this is not what I was expecting actually, um, but I'll read a couple sections from these two pages. Uh, first quote in the middle of the page. The day is closing in and the gas is lighted, but not yet fully effective, for it's not quite dark. Mr. Snagsby, standing at his shop door, looking up at the clouds, sees a crow who is out late, skim westward over the slice of sky belonging to Cook's Court. The crow flies straight across Chancery Lane and Lincoln's Inn Garden into Lincoln's Inn Fields. Here in a large house, formerly a house of state, lives Mr. Tolkinghorn. It is let off in sets of chambers now, and in those shrunken fragments of its greatness, lawyers lie like maggots in nuts. 
but its roomy staircases, passages, and antechambers still remain. And even its painted ceilings, where allegory and Roman helmet and celestial linen sprawls among balustrades and pillars, flowers, clouds, and big-legged boys, and makes the head ache, as would seem to be allegory's object always, more or less. Here, among his many boxes labeled with transcendent names, lives Mr. Tolkienhorn, when not speechlessly at home in country houses where the great ones of the earth are bored to death. Here he is today, quiet at his table, an oyster of the old school whom nobody can open." Unquote. I really like these dark descriptions, and what I like in particular is similar to what we were just talking about with all of these different styles of writing almost when we're talking about different characters, which is the setting so fits the man. <laughs> the setting so fits this character, and I, I would argue that settings throughout the novel indeed do fit the characters, right? We were talking about, in particular, Mrs. Jellybee's house being in complete disorder, just like Mrs. Jellybee, honestly, <laughs> um, uh, and in, in the episode on Monday. And here it goes on, this passage goes on to talk about these heavy, out-of-date furniture pieces of furniture and the papers and the dust and everything's set out like it's on stage, like it's a set of a movie or a play. And even though most of the things that are set out for Tolkien Horn are not in use, uh, they're as much a part of the room as Tolkien Horn is. And it's an idea about this presence being a figure in the room as much, again, as any object. And so the, the setting and the surroundings affect the characterizations of the figures in these kinds of settings. So for example, we're in Mr. Tolkienhorn's home. Same would be said of Chesney Wald, for example, and the housekeeper and lady and Sir Deadlock who live there, the people who live there. The settings so reflect the people who live there. They are external manifestations of the internal states, of the internal characterizations, personalities of these characters. And so there really is no lack of imagination when it comes to this. The, it's just absurd the amount of objects that it goes on to list and moods and feelings in the room and the air becomes lighter in some places and palpable in others. I think of the ghost's walk, for example, and that how that story and how that place, both individually, contribute to a characterization of the Leicester deadlocks. We'll go quickly to page 160, where it talks about the rooks. I love this passage as well. It's so beautiful. You all can probably tell. I like passages especially by the omniscient narrator. I'm, I'm quite partial to that kind of narration, especially in this style of Old English writing. Uh, the Bronte sisters use this somewhat. I think of um, especially Agnes Grey, one of my favorite novels that's uh, written sort of similarly to like how the Esther sections are written, but it's, it's the style is elevated in a way that is particular to these types of descriptions, which I, I like. I like the formality of it because we don't get much of the formality nowadays, if you can't tell in uh, modern English speaking, writing, and reading, unless you're an academician. 
So the rooks. Rooks are crows. I'll just put that out there. Footnote, help me out with that one. Page 160. The rooks swinging in their lofty houses in the elm tree avenue seem to discuss the question of the occupancy of the carriage. I'm going to do a little aside here. That is the carriage of Lady Dedlock and Sir Leghester Dedlock as they're moving from Paris to London. Let's continue with the passage. Quote, the carriage as it passes underneath. Some agreeing that Sir Leicester and my lady are coming are come down. Some arguing with malcontents who won't admit it, now all consenting to consider the question disposed of. Now all breaking out again in violent debate, incited by one obstinate and drowsy bird who will persist in putting in a last contradictory cloak. Leaving them to sling and caw, the traveling chariot rolls on to the house where fires gleam warmly through some of the windows, though not through so many as to give an inhabited expression to the darkening mass of front. But the brilliant and distinguished circle will soon do that. What a beautiful passage as well. And I love how there's these asides thinking about the crows and I didn't really think of the connection immediately between the crows in the previous passage that we just read from 138 and this one, but definitely there's something going on here with the scenes being set not only by the weather, often dismal, dismal weather as befits the title, but the animals associated with that weather and crows being a symbol sort of of, sort of like harbingers of something and here the crows are bickering and they represent to the narrator almost i think parts or fellow occupants of this fashionable intelligence fellow spies if you will all right i'm gonna do some cross comparisons really quick i love these kinds of things i know many people get weary of them so i'm gonna do a bunch of them in short order Alright, so Mrs. Jellybee's house and the way that she conducts her house is similar to the way the tutor conducts his house in Great Expectations. If we will all remember, there is a tutor that Pip visits in order to get his education as soon as he's come across this money. This tutor is outside of London. Uh, and he has lots of children that like tumble. <laughs> They're known as like the tumbling children. and. Um, his wife, I remember, has some uh, disdain about how she was almost uh, barren or, or something or other, and she's, you know, looking at the family history all the time. Well, whatever the case was, uh, Mrs. Jellybee and the tutor of Great Expectations, the later tutor of Pips, very similar. Also, Oliver Twist's guardians are quite similar uh, in after he works at the factory he lodges or like during that time he lodges with these two individuals with a bunch of children including twins and they're quite the mess domestically as well and there's these little themes of domestic disorder that revolve quite particularly around their respective occupancies or lack thereof of the constituents and again, this relates in part to the theme that we just talked about, which is that the situations, the domestic situations, or the actual physical spaces of these characters reflect the characters' internal states. 
And there is, it seems like there is always a character or two in a Dickens novel that has just a domestic situation that is wildly out of order <laughs> that the, the main character encounters. I just want to put it out there really quick. The Old Curiosity Shop and Mr. Crook's Secondhand Law Shop. You're welcome. Uh, Mr. Snagsby, I think, is like Joe from Great Expectations. Joe being Pip's father, for all intents and purposes. His, uh, his, sort of his uncle by marriage. But his father, for all intents and purposes, again. Mr. Snagsby, um, is governed by who he calls his little woman, uh, which I love. <laughs> I love their relationship. It's, it's so cataclysmic. Um, and fascinating to me that there's this man who's quite successful, but he has none of the arrogance or the pride that his wife has, uh, seemingly for herself, but I think maybe it's for them both. And Mr. Snagsby defaults to this very strong female figure as Joe defaults to Pip's aunt, or Pip's sister, rather, sorry. Got that lineage jumbled up for a minute. Um, so yeah, Joe defaults to Pip's sister before she dies to an insane extent, right? He defaults to her in all matters, and it's not an, a balanced relationship by any means, which is something else that I think is really interesting about Dickens, is that he's unafraid to write uh, female characters that have all of the stakes. <laughs> they hold all of the stakes and all of the keys to the relationship and in some ways to the plot, right? We think of Esther as being a character so central. I'm going to get into Esther in a second, but yes, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pause that for a sec. <laughs> um, so yeah, Mr. Snagsby being another one of these figures that is completely governed by his wife, just like Joe from Great Expectations. We've also got um, children who are in dire straits, like Joe J.O. from this novel, similar to Oliver Twist in that sense. Very interesting. Um, I'll also point out a broader cross-comparison that I was thinking about mulling over, if you will, earlier, which is that Sir Leicester Dedlock, he, there's a scene as they're leaving Paris where Sir Leicester Dedlock, he's read all his letters, he's sitting there kind of bored, <laughs> you know, Lady Dedlock and him are looking at each other like, huh, and he decides to start contemplating his own greatness. <laughs> and and uh, Dickens makes a comment to the extent of, isn't it great that <laughs> it's, it's always great for a man to have something like his own greatness to contemplate, which I found hilarious. I thought it was great. Um, and I was thinking sort of about how Sir Leicester Dedlock and Lady Dedlock are similar to the relationship between Catherine and, I don't remember his name, like Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew. Look, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, so please comment down below and just let me know if I'm crazy for thinking of The Taming of the Shrew with regards to... Uh, this particular duo, but I really did think of <laughs> uh, the absurd relationship there uh, that Shakespeare so aptly describes with this particular relationship, which, you know, everything regarding character, at least a lot of things regarding character, 
in uh, this Dickens novel in particular, which is a stunning social critique on every social scale, pretty much, especially the gentry. Um, it's going to be overwrought. A lot of the actions and descriptions of the characters are going to be pretty extreme, as with the Tolkien horn description that we were reading earlier. And one thing that I will not go over to a great extent, but I will bring up is how Mrs. Jellybee is foiled with Mrs. Pardiggle, and how in both cases, <laughs> it's all a show. And in so many other ways, it's consistently all a show for all of the characters. It's just more obvious in the case of Jellybee and Partigal and the foiling that takes place between them that their actions are indeed a show. All right, shifting gears to character, Tolkienhorn. I am so interested in this figure. I think he quite reminds me of myself in, in the respect that he's very formal and he doesn't always give away what he's thinking and there's so much in Tolkienhorn, in, in the stakes of Tolkienhorn, should I say, at this point in the novel that, yeah, I'm really interested in hearing from him further, looking at his character further in episodes like these. My real question is why does he go after the person who had written that document? To the extent literally of going to his house and of course finding him dead, um, but is that a societal commentary within itself? Is there something in Tolkienhorn that is just such a kiss up to these nobles? Most of me believes that's not the case, right? But there's just some weird thing in Tolkienhorn that I just can't put my finger on and I hope you guys can explain it to me in the comments, that would be lovely. But yeah, I'm gonna keep my eye on him and hopefully you all will too. Looking at, of course, you know, what does, what do his, what does his actions say about not only the novel and the commentary that Dickens is creating here, um, but how do they, are they just a plot device? I guess that's my question is, is do they have, do they have conscience aside from just being a plot device? And something in me is saying there's more to this situation that you just don't understand or aren't reading into at this point, maybe don't have enough information for. So uh, I digress. <laughs> I'm going to keep my eye on Tolkienhorn. Finally, I've gotten to the point in my notes where we can talk about Esther. Here is the trope, and I'm going to get all impassioned. Here is the trope of the Christian martyr in, in this era of literature. I think of the Brontes. I think of Agnes Grey, okay? I think of um, not Wuthering Heights. That's not a great example. Some, like Joe and Little Women, which I have not read. I've just sort of heard about, so maybe that's not a good example either, but... There's women, the way that some women are portrayed, especially important or vital women to the narration, to the story, to the plot, um, they're sometimes described as martyrs. And to me, it's kind of a trope uh, or this pattern that comes up in this area of literature. 
And I almost think of Anne Bronte herself as being the poster child of this. I really, as I said in the Agnes Grey episode, I really don't believe that I, Anne Bronte was this quiet, uh, fastidious type of young young woman who was, you know, so pious and everything. I'm sure she was all of those things, but I also think that she was, she has or had tenacity, and I think that she was the most ferocious of the three Bronte sisters. Uh, again, highly contested viewpoint, but I think that there was just a fire in her that her sister Charlotte diminished after she died in order to make the themes and uh, in her literature as well as her public image in order to protect those after she died because she couldn't do so herself. And so Charlotte paints after Emily and Anne die this image of these two wonderful sisters. Anne is very quiet, again fastidious, and the main thing that comes to mind when you look at accounts of Anne Bronte is her being just so devout and so quiet in that regard and having almost this silencing effect uh, of over her own personality which again you know I'm sure she was pious and there's amazing uh, amazingly written religious themes in Agnes Grey uh, and they're they're beautifully written and incorporated into the the plot as well as the actual dictation of the story but I just can't bring myself to believe that she was this quiet, innocent type of type of woman because of the because of what she did while she was alive, because of how much she wrote and the way in which she wrote and the kinds of themes that she wanted to approach and she wasn't afraid to approach those themes as a woman dot dot dot, <laughs> right? So that's my whole spiel about Esther is Esther is the way that she's portrayed or the way that light is shining on her at this point in the novel, and I'm not going to get into later iterations of Esther, we're going to talk about it uh, in, in future weeks, but the way that the light is shining on Esther at this point is exactly the way, which irks me to no degree, that the light is shining on Anne Bronte after her death, and Charlotte is the one shining that light, and so um, my inclination here is to look for things in Esther that defy that trope and that pattern in literature like this. I hope that I can challenge you all to do the same and look for the Esther behind the narration and behind Esther right now is hiding behind all of the characters that she's around, right? We need to find the true Esther, I think, in order to understand the broader point of Esther's narration, which I think is much deeper and multi-layered and multi-faceted than just simply Esther is so selfless and she's so uh, devout. Alright, gonna step off my little soapbox here. <laughs> a couple other things that I want to maybe recontextualize or put in the forefront as you all continue reading and as I continue reading in the novel. Rosa and Mrs. Deadlock, or Lady Deadlock rather, I want to think about the percentages or maybe the influences of beauty 
and morality and uh, personality in these two different women characters. There's so much there that we're not going to get into, but I want you and I would challenge you again to look at Rosa and Lady Deadlock as two different sides of the same coin. One in very fortunate circumstances, one also I shall say um, a party in the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case, and one without those kinds of circumstances, yet they have a common thread which is beauty. And there's a big question here of, we, well we don't hear much from Lady Deadlock in, this first, uh, four in these first four serials, um, and we don't hear much from Rosa either, but looking at the question of morality and how these two women are framed in the narration. And finally, the old lady. We're talking about the old lady who is in chapter one, I should say. So few characters, let me think, so few characters in chapter one come up again and again in the way that the old lady does. And she's this minor character in the sense that she's in the background of a lot of scenes, right? But I think she will ultimately come to mean much more to us, um, at least uh, to certain sections later on. And I am excited to re-encounter her at, because she just keeps popping up. She's like a little jack-in-the-box or some such uh, thing. The old lady, I think the recontextualization, as I said, is the most important and interesting thing about her. And there are other characters that are recontextualized over and over again in in well in dickens stories in in general but also like i think of for example the namesake books oliver twist david copperfield to an extent great expectations with this prisoner being recontextualized throughout the story um but in particular how this old lady is written can serve as an overt symbol for how a lot of the other characters are written as well. And I think we've gotten some interesting and important news about further forthcoming uh, recontextualizations later. Um, Nemo, for example, yes, he will get recontextualized. I am sure of it. I don't know that yet, but I'm sure. Um, and Nemo's dead, might I add, you know? So it's, it's beautiful how Dickens allows enough ambiguity within his characterizations as specific and colorful and, and overwrought as they are oftentimes, right? I think back to the Boythorn quote that we uh, went over near the beginning of the episode. He still leaves enough room for these characters to be rewritten throughout the story. What a beautiful message that we could all be rewritten as well as we continue on in our lives, in our own individual stories. Alright y'all, that is all for today. I hope you super enjoyed the first four serials of Bleak House by Charles Dickens. I really enjoyed them myself, and making these episodes is always a blast from the production end. Keep up on the show calendar for these episodes. That's on the homepage at relevanceofliterature.com. Also check out what's going on on Patreon. I'm going to be doing some weekly things as we move into summer. There's live streams as always. More content for you all if you are interested in that. All right, y'all. I'll see you next week. We have 
an interview next week, which is uh, quite different, I would say, than what we have done in the past year, but um, so is the time. The times are opening up again and changing, so I hope you will enjoy the interview next week as well. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.